0: You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedwin Sound Clash, iMother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. Uh, He was the co-lead vocalist and guitarist for the platinum selling and five time Juno nominated band uh, Trouble Charger. He's also been a part of Broken Social Scene, Don Vale, The Prittle Concern, and his new project Pointless. So welcome to the podcast, Bill Prittle. Bill, how are you and how good does it feel to be writing and recording new music in 2022?
1: Uh, thanks, Joel. I'm I'm good. Um, yeah, it feels. Uh, I, my band Pointless is is a bit of a it kind of solved a writer's block for me. I kind of didn't write anything for the longest time, so it's it's been gratifying.
0: Is is the music just kind of flowing now, or is it just slow and steady, if, but better than writer's flowing. block?
1: I was reading a an interview with a, a Stephen Malkmus from the band Pavement. And this was quite a while ago when he was well into his solo career. And he said, yeah, you know, when I was young in pavement, I used to write all the time. But now, you know, there's families and kids and and uh, fantasy football. And I just don't have the <laughs> I just don't devote all my time to it anymore. So I'm kind of in the same boat. It, it, it happens when it happens, but uh, it's things don't come super easily like
0: like they did, it seems. I hear you. Has the writer's block mostly been during the length of the pandemic? No, no, quite, quite before that. Um,
1: uh, Basically from like 2007 to
0: about five years ago. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I hear that the best thing to do as a writer, whether it's for books or for music is, to show up at the same place every day, like it's, uh, you know, not waiting for inspiration, but like it's, it's your job. It's your career. Every day you sit down from, I don't know, 10 AM to 1 PM and you, you just write, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's one line or a song or a chapter. And I I guess it's putting yourself in place that whenever inspiration does hit, you're there with the pen to pad. Uh, is there any truth behind any of that or is that nonsense Uh... I read?
1: I don't know. For me, it was more of a a situational thing um, because as, as a, as a working musician, you get into a a, a pattern, you, you write songs and then you work on the songs then you record them. And then the album comes out and you tour and then the tour slows down and you start writing more songs. And after the Prittle Concern came out, that kind of broke the cycle um, because it, it, the, the album wasn't a, a, a huge success and so there was there was no touring and it broke the cycle and then it just coincided with with I split up for my wife and and so I shared custody of, of of our kid and and I was just I was working as a cook and and taking care of my kids so that took kind of all my all my time um yeah.
0: Yeah, sometimes life life takes over where you think yep. me, me sitting down and writing a song. I mean, maybe that's not the most important thing when there's a kid that needs your attention. There's bills that need to be paid. Yeah. Isn't it isn't it great to to be young and just working on music, you know, just that freedom of of it's yep. the only thing that matters and there's no responsibilities. There's a beauty to that period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. Ah, if only we had a time machine I suppose uh, yeah. so speaking of time machines we're we're gonna do a, a two- hour deep dive we're going to go through your entire career through your entire discography across all your projects so we have to take a time machine and go all the way back to the beginning so you're right. you're clearly passionate about music Where did this love of music come from and is there maybe an earliest musical memory that jumps out at you um I would say you know people are, people always ask, uh, you know who's your biggest musical influence?
1: And I think like, well, I, I guess the Beatles, because that was. Then I think about other other acts, but but really, I would say my musical influence is, is my father. He, he was not a musician, but he was a big music fan, and he always had. We always had a stereo and albums, and he made and and he always had a reel to reel tape deck, and he made mixtapes. And he had a—he knew someone at the radio station, so he would borrow singles a lot. And so I grew up listening to these mixtapes. tapes. And you know, if back then you you couldn't get better, it's not like we had a gazillion-dollar stereo. But when you have a half-decent turntable and you record it onto quarter-inch tape at three and three quarters you get this beautiful tape compression. So everything sounds amazing. Um, so we, yeah, I just grew up listening to music all the time. Um, um, uh, you know, Greg, Nori and I, we've, we've known each other since we were infants. Our parents used to share a ski chalet and Greg and I used to, when we were seven or eight years old, we used to sleep in the same bed and it was very thin walls and we were right above the stereo so we basically go to sleep listening to the, this same music uh, a lot of ccr a lot of beatles uh kind of early country kind of early 70s singer songwriter stuff
0: your dad was making mixtapes before it was easy to make mixtapes with exactly CD. exactly He's a he's a pioneer in that field. Uh, so you mentioned some of the the artists you heard, uh, the Beatles. Your parents would play CCR. Uh, some of the country stuff. Uh, is there any other of that early early music that that jumped out to you when you were a kid?
1: Um, there was one particular mixtape, and it had a whole bunch of great songs on it, and and it had "Heart of Gold" on it by Neil Young. And I remember thinking because I'd heard country i'd heard i didn't like country when i was a kid so i i didn't like that sound of that country steel guitar but on heart of gold there was something about it. i remember thinking like what is this sound what what is going on it kind of filled my head and it was kind of like what what is going on? i don't understand what's going on but it's amazing
0: yeah I, it's I'm, a little less country a little, little more folky a little more yeah pop elements to it yeah and i think
1: like 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 so many people around my age, I was a Beatles fanatic when I was eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. So that was kind of my
0: whole world. And what do you think, what do you think it was about the Beatles? I mean, obviously they have some of the greatest songs of all time. Is it the harmonies? Is it the look? What is it about the Beatles that you remember?
1: Oh, I think it's, it's, you know, the Beatles just made great, records they made great recordings The you know the songs were great the singers were great it, it was everything
0: they were the, the the full package The full package so that that was you um becoming a fan of music but how did you become a musician so how did you gravitate towards the guitar and then i'm i'm, I'm assuming singing came later than the guitar that's usually what happens yeah um
1: when I was about eight or nine, my parents said, do you want to learn an instrument? And I said, yeah, I want to learn a guitar. So they bought me a really cheap guitar and I took classical guitar lessons for years uh, with uh, this guy called Dennis McGregor here in Sault Ste. Marie. And I was, I was not very good. I was, I was really good at sight sight reading and reading music, but I was not good at practicing. I was not into classical music. Um, and I didn't start singing till I was probably sixteen or seventeen or eighteen um and the the first the first rock band I was in in high school was terrible and i was i was awful um
0: yet i'm i'm a late bloomer did did you enjoy those guitar lessons or or not so much because it was classical
1: yeah i did i don't remember looking forward to them um i do remember. I remember, I would go to summer camp and, and a counselor one year was was playing Stairway to Heaven on his acoustic guitar. And I looked at that and I thought, what is going on? Well, how is that even possible? And I remember my guitar teacher gave me the sheet music to, to Stairway to Heaven. I was like, what?
0: A, like a mortal can play this? That's that's awesome. Yeah, Stairway to Heaven is like a, a gateway drug for most guitarists in the beginning, for yeah. sure.
1: And it, seemed like, it seemed like when I was a kid, any kind of, I have these strong memories of seeing someone playing, like, I think the first time I saw someone, you know, playing electric guitar, not seeing a band, but he, I think he was playing a, a, a BTO song, and he was playing the chords, and I was just, I was like, how how are you doing that? Like, it sounds just like the
0: record. I mean, it probably didn't, but to me, it just sounded ex- like how... How is that possible? Did he have distortion going and everything? I don't even think that much distortion, just like the sound of electric guitar right beside you. Just like, whoa. When when you started singing, did you have did you have the first few moments where you're already playing guitar and you decide, you know what, I want to try being a singer. And you realize you can't play guitar and sing at the same time. Like it's two different parts of the brain that need to be separated at first. Did you get that um, at all?
1: I didn't have that much problem with that. I did have that exactly with harmonica. Um, I used to be a, I used to be a ski racer and I I was not very good, but I hung around people that were good that were on the the Northern Ontario division.
0: Sorry. I have to say that that's, that's something that's dangerous to (laughs) not be good at is. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't think I was fast enough to be dangerous. You know how people, you know, they, they
1: hit the poles and the poles go rattle. I never hit a pole in my life. That's funny. Um, funny. So one of the guys, one of the Northern Ontario division guys was John Critchley. And when these guys would come into town, we would all hang out. So we were hanging out at someone's ski chalet. And John had his guitar and harmonica. And he was singing and playing harmonica. And I remember thinking to myself, I got it. I got to get moving here. Like he's singing and playing harmonica. I got to do that. So I remember I spent, I got a harmonica with a rack and I would spend all day playing heart of gold on the harmonica with the rack. And, and just like you said, sat down, played the guitar. And then it was like my, my hands exploded. It just couldn't, I could not multitask.
0: Was uh Neil. So you mentioned heart of gold. So was it Neil Young and maybe Bob Dylan that got you interested in the harmonica?
1: Yeah, I would say yeah. And your I wasn't, friend. Into, yeah, I wasn't yeah. into Dylan yet, but I would say I would say Neil Young taught me how to sing. And that maybe that's partly why I kind of sound like Neil Young. I think it's physiology as well.
0: But you, you mentioned that when you first started, you were in a band and you weren't great. Uh, what was the name of that band? And were you in a bunch of bands before uh, Trouble Charger?
1: Uh, yeah, we had a cover band in high school called Ziggy Freud. Uh, it was not a good band. Uh, I think we only had one or two gigs. Then we, then we kind of, that was kind of a rock band. Then we had more of a like Southern rock rootsy country rock band called East side. I think, um, These are good band names so far. And then Greg and I started doing just playing the two of us acoustically. We do a lot of like Simon and Garfunkel and Neil Young and, and stuff with harmonies in it.
0: Look at that. We got a, we got a little, uh, a show. We we always end up with cats and dogs on yeah. the show. So yeah. what's your, what's your cat's name? Just so we're all, uh, her that's name it. is tiny kitten, tiny kitten. Yeah. That is a solid name. You're as good as naming your animals as you are naming bands. So <laughs> thank you. That's, that's funny. So, uh, you mentioned, uh, along the way you ended up performing covers with, with Greg and that you've known him since you were really young. Um, at what point was there an idea that we, we should start uh, a band together and do original songs?
1: Um, it was the 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 late 80s when we both kind of like flamed out of university and, uh, and I decided, okay, music is what I want to do. And then I moved. Greg had gone to school in Windsor and he knew a, gu- a guitar player and he was in a band. So I came, joined that band, uh, became the bass player And after about six or nine months, uh, the guitar player decided that he wanted to focus on um, directing. He became a probably still doing it now. He became like a like a kid's TV director. And I said to Greg, let's go to Toronto and start our own band. And then we uh, we moved to Toronto and started up a, a band called it was called Warehouse. Not a good name. And we did we did the smartest thing, and I recommend this to any band starting out. We we recorded an album uh, in in Greg's roommate's room with a with a I guess a half inch Tascam eight track or sixteen track. I think I did all the engineering. We we recorded it. We mixed it. I don't know if we mastered it. I guess we mastered it and we made cassette tapes and we listened to it and we thought this is terrible (laughs) and we didn't do anything with it. And so as a result, the next batch of songs we did were with NC 17 and then subsequently treble charger. So I think a lot of people were like, wow, where, where did these guys come from with these songs? Well, the reason is you didn't hear our terrible songs.
0: Basically, by the time you made a legit recording, it was almost like a greatest hits. You had already gone through the other stuff.
1: Yeah, the the other stuff was gone, was just gone. Like we did not, none of those songs lasted. We just wrote new, better songs.
0: Is, is that original recording that you think is terrible, does that exist anywhere? Or did you guys like dumpster fire that thing? You don't think
1: Greg might have it. I'm not, I'm not, I, I know I don't have it. Because back then it was, you know, your master was on a VHS tape.
0: Technology. Yep. So you talked about growing up in, in Sault Ste. Marie. How much do you think that that... Um, influenced who you became as a person and who you became as a musician? Is there something unique about Sault Ste. Marie?
1: Uh, I don't know. It's just a, it's a very, it's a very isolated small city. It's, you know, Sudbury is pretty worldly because it's only, you know, two and a half, three hours to Toronto from Sudbury, but it's, this is another three hours or so west of Sudbury. It's very backwards you talk to any any bands from the 90s you never stopped here we never stopped we we're from here we never stopped here there's never been any canadian rock radio there's never been any canadian college radio so the the canadian music scene didn't really exist here it's it's like the trues are coming i was mentioning someone like the trues and they were like who are the trues like it's just very
0: yeah so when, when bands are planning out their Canadian tour dates, Sault Ste. Marie isn't up there with Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. No, absolutely not.
1: It, it, I, I, right before a uh, uh, trouble chart, the last job I had before full being a full-time musician was, uh, was, I used to, um, I was an assistant to a graphic designer. I used to design that what was then MCA concerts now magazine lineup. And so I would get all these tour dates all the time and it would, consistently be Sudbury, Thunder Bay, Sudbury, Thunder Bay, Sudbury, Thunder Bay, never the Sioux.
0: Sioux St. Marie is the, the city that fun forgot. That's what they say about yep. Ottawa. <laughs> I've heard an Ottawa radio DJ say that before, the city that uh, fun forgot. Um, you, you you talked about doing some graphic design. W- what are some of the other jobs that you had before Uh, becoming a professional musician any really memorable ones or any terrible ones just so Uh, we know you're 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 human and you had to go through the the trenches like the rest of us yeah i worked i
1: worked believe it or not at a phone sex company back before there was like people would call the number in a magazine and i would pick up and say give me your credit card information i would check their credit card and, and it was it was not a fun job and you would work like midnight to noon shifts it was brutal
0: was there anything special in your resume that got you hired there
1: no you didn't need anything you'd uh-huh. be like have a pulse there. yeah you, you i was let's see i was somehow i got this job as a assistant to a, uh, a science writers group so i, I ran this this uh, uh journalism contest um yeah
0: these are some exciting jobs and no no wonder you turned to music with so much passion and
1: you know bartender server that kind of thing
0: and as a kid in Sault Ste. Marie was was there anything you wanted to be growing up before you you fell in love with music
1: no I probably from an early age I wanted to be a, a musician I had my stage name all 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 Elliot Black. You know it's not a bad stage name.
0: Yeah, you're you're good at these the naming of bands. If ever I start another band, I'm coming to you for a name. All right. Seven. Yeah. Uh if if we happened to be friends when you were 16 and you invited me over to listen to some music, what albums would you be spinning for me?
1: Okay, 16. I'm going to say Hotel California. Nice. Uh, probably heavy rotation would be cheap trick heaven tonight. Um probably any 70s Steely Dan. So probably Asia and the Royal Scam. Uh probably some Joe Walsh. Uh
0: Rolling Stones. Man, those there's good music during that period of time. Not not all errors of music are the same. I we can agree. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm really old.
1: We we were always like sensitive about our age because all all our indie rock peers were all about five or six years younger than us. So I'm old enough to remember when, when music started to die in the early eighties and you started to notice, wow, there's not a lot of good songs on the top 40. And it just, you know, went down consistently downhill from there
0: what do you think was the catalyst for for you know the the all-time great music kind of dying off
1: this is one of my favorite subjects i feel like it was a perfect storm at the end of the 70s um we had a we, briefly we had a one of the coolest guys i've ever met a, a, an american booking agent um and we went to his we were in la and we we went to his place in the hills for dinner and he had what he called the only the only good New York style pizza in in LA. And he told us the the history of what had gone wrong in the music business. And he talked about, I think maybe he might have used the example of Joni Mitchell, your asylum records and you signed Joni Mitchell in I don't know, 69 or 68, 69, 70. And you know that the first album is going to lose money and the second album's going to lose money and the third album might break even. And after that, through your careful development of this artist, you're going to start making money, which is exactly what happened with Joni and so many many others. And he said that kind of long-term thinking, it went from 10 years to five years to two years to one year to quarterly to, at the time, daily stock prices. (laughs) So you had that, you had the corporatization of music So you had no more radio DJs playing what they wanted. Advertisers wanted a very tight playlist. You were only listening to this much music. Then you had the advent of video. So the music wasn't the only important thing. You had to be good looking too. So that watered down things as well. And then the fact that in the late 70s and early 80s, gear got terrible the new digital gear and everyone's like on drum machines and, and then add to that, that pot, a little cocaine and you have like the recipe for, for destroying
0: music. That's, I think that's a good uh, uh synopsis of, of, of what went down, but yeah, no, it, it, there's a lot of artists that it took them three, four albums of development where the, the label had long-term vision and, um, I know Bon Jovi, it took several albums. Springsteen took several albums a little bit newer, but Kid Rock. It took it was like his, I don't know, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh album before he had the big one. So uh, I guess it, it feels like these days it's all the development has to be done before the label becomes involved. Like a label basically looks yeah. at, at a band and sees that they're already selling tickets. They already have yeah. millions of yeah. followers and they it's just Money. They go, okay, well, they've done this well on their own. If we put this much money times the current fan base, it should make the, you know, it's it's a formula.
1: Exactly. Other than, other than someone seeing some kids sing and, and thinking, wow, you can, you can sort of sing and you're incredibly good looking.
0: That,
1: <laughs> that's, a, that, that's another formula. you need to be, need to be a, a finished product and have your own audience already in place.
0: And things are, are a little different now i guess back before the beatles it was all about the, just singles not albums and then yeah. the beatles from my understanding are the first artists that had so much good music that they could put out a full album that was worth buying and since the beatles it's been all about albums and not singles and then since you know the digital downloads and the streaming and napster and iTunes we've gone back to a a singles market is 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 that accurate is it more singles now and bands seem to be releasing singles and EPs instead of uh instead of yeah I, I
1: I think so I'm I'm no expert in the music business at present I that's never been my thing I'm just I'm just about music so I try not to think about all the business side of things to, to my detriment, but
0: <laughs> yeah, an, an example I just had: uh, the drummer for uh, Big Wreck on, so his name's Seku, and they finished recording a fifteen-song album. So the album will be called Big Wreck Seven, and what they did because of the way the industry is now is they they divided that into three EPs that they're releasing every few months. So there's I seven point one and there's a single and it's like people can focus on just those five songs. Nice. Yeah, yep. um, no, that's, that's, so that, that, that's what it. they're doing. And it seems to be kind of a, a you know reflection of, of what's going on. And instead of, you know, 15 songs coming out today and then four months later, there's nothing for a year or two. Uh, it, it's like every five months, a new product comes out. But over time, it's the same amount of songs. I guess that's the, the thought yep. behind it now. It's very, very, very different. Um. How how early on as a musician did you know that you had something special, that you actually had a talent that you could maybe get paid for, that somehow if you worked hard, uh, you could turn this into a career?
1: I I don't think it was until we were doing, we started recording the, uh, the NC-17 record. Um, and we I don't remember how... Whether we finished, we wrote, recorded all the songs, and then, but we had a we had a a, a three song cassette, and uh, and then with that got us a manager, and and it was around that time, it was around that time, and we were I was working so hard in the studio, and I just remember thinking um, that that this is going to work. I, I'm I'm going to make this work. We're we're doing good good stuff here. Like I didn't have that feeling when we made that that first album that we scrapped as i said um uh, but uh and the the engineer rob sanzo his reaction as well i i i remember we were we were listening to a rough mix of red and, and i remember him thinking like if this isn't really successful then i don't know anything about music
0: it's it, you know it it's nice from the start where you said, you know, you're not great. You're in bands. You're not great. You make that first recording. It doesn't sound great. Uh, it must feel nice then at that point to have people outside of the band actually saying how good something is and, and that there's something there that must uh, make, make you feel pretty good.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and, you know, I read something a little while ago about someone pointing out the fact that successful artists need to have good taste. So they need to be able to push through the point where they're making something that they know isn't very good so you know if if, if you're clueless and you think everything you do is great then you're not going to go far but if you're if you have really good taste and you think oh this is terrible I should quit you're not going to go far so it's that sweet spot of like pushing through I think I can do better I think I can do better and then you,
0: know, you think okay yeah no I, I like this this is good did, did you ever deal with resistance from family or friends early on a lot of times musicians were told you know just get that good job get the education uh career in the music industry that's a pipe dream uh did you have resistance and how did you how were you able to deal with that resistance
1: well I just I I remember I remember specifically uh, uh visiting visiting Sault Ste. Marie and talking with my dad we were outside somewhere and I was saying just what you were talking about I was just at that stage where I'm pretty sure this is going to be successful you know no one really knows who we are we haven't sold anything or done any big gigs but I'm pretty sure and I was explaining to him I think I'm going to make this work and he was literally walking away from me because he thought this was just you know he was a, a lawyer he thought I should be an accountant and uh and he thought this was just, you know, r- ridiculous. And it took him about three or four years to come around when we were we were sort of on the cover of Maclean's magazine. There was a big uh, uh, cover story about the renaissance of Canadian music. And there was like a maple leaf collage of band photos. And our photo was on. So we were, you know, we were not by ourselves on the cover of Maclean's, but we were so, so at that point, my dad was "Oh, my son, the rock star.
0: Who uh, who else do you do you remember being uh, on that cover? Probably Our Lady Peace or Moist or.
1: Yeah. Uh, probably Tragically Hip.
0: Oh, I, I yeah, how remember. dare I not start with Tragically Hip? Probably
1: probably Sloan. Uh, yeah, the don't. glory days. Yeah, I don't I do not remember.
0: Yeah, as I talk to more and more uh, bands and artists on this podcast, it, it, almost all of them, it took something major like a magazine cover, a Juno nomination, a Grammy nomination for, for the family to come around because that's like it's undeniable at that point. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So apparently you have two nicknames. This is what Wikipedia tells me. And Wikipedia isn't always correct, but Pedal Freak, and the Priddler. So when were those bestowed upon you? And uh, how, how did they come to be?
1: A, a pedal Freak is is one of those Wikipedia things. No one's ever called me Pedal Freak. Yes, I love guitar pedals, but name me one guitar player that doesn't.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, the so that's pedal, not a that's not really a thing, Pedal Freak? That is absolutely not a thing. I wonder which one individual person went in and updated Wikipedia with that. That's yeah funny. who
1: knows uh the priddler i'm gonna say that's kind of 2000s i think the, the i think maybe the when i was living in dunville when i met mitch from dawn vale i think it was those
0: guys that started calling me the Priddler possibly that was a little more self-explanatory i suppose yeah yeah. So uh, as we transition now into the the start of Treble Charger, so we have talked about it a little bit, you know, you knew Greg growing up and then with mutual friends, you, f- you form a band. Uh, so the band was originally called NC-17 and there happened to be one or more bands that already had that name. Uh, I guess they threatened legal, you know, some legal yeah. stuff and you, you changed the name. So how, how did the name NC-17 How did that start? And then where did the transition to trouble charger come from?
1: I don't remember how we got NC 17. I just remember someone came up with it and we, and everyone thought, well, this is a good name.
0: And that's from the movies, right? That's like the classification of movies.
1: And it also was like almost the, the star Wars, the star Trek, uh, I think it's NCC something with a one and a seven. So we thought, oh, this is like hitting on all levels here. <laughs> um, yeah, then we, then we, this pair band from from California, they you know sent a letter from a lawyer's office, and we thought, oh, this is and our manager was like, oh, this is bad, you got to change your name, and I remember we, I think it was 1994, early 1994. And we had a deadline because we were going to be the first band at the Molson park, tragically hip July 1st show. So we had like X days to come up with a name to go on the poster. And, uh, I stole, I came up with treble and Greg came up with charger and I stole treble from, from the band pavement again, their, uh, a publishing company was called treble sands and i thought treble that's good yeah treble
0: something that's good and then charger from greg so you guys are yeah. collaborating right from the start 50 yeah. 50 so i like i like that so in 1994 you guys release your debut album uh, nc 17 so this is named after the original band yeah. name i guess yeah you know, kind of in honor of the name that was was taken from you. Uh, two singles. So there was Red, the original version of Red and in 10th Grade Love. Um, so it was released independently at first by a label called Smoking Worm. Uh, how did you attract the attention of, of that label? Was it just your
1: building? Oh, that's, just, that's just us.
0: Oh, that's yeah. you guys. OK, yeah. self-released. Because yeah. I
1: drew this. I don't know if you have any images of the Smoking Worm. Or the Smoking Worm. With an apostrophe, it was like this, this kind of dragon-like character that I drew cartoon with a with a martini glass and a cigarette, and uh, those were our. That was the the three song tape. That was the cover, and we had shirts made up like that. Um, yeah, and then we um, we were playing at the Elma Combo, and this band called Tristan Sionic was opening up for us and uh and i was talking to the guitar player sandy after both our sets and i said like wow you guys are great like we 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 play a lot of shows and usually the bands we play with are terrible and you guys are really good and he said yeah same with us usually bands we play with are terrible you guys are really good and then we then we uh, became on sonic their label sonic onion
0: okay and and what thoughts um memories emotions come back when you think to that debut album that kick started this this wild journey
1: yeah i don't i don't really remember any any i don't i don't remember the day that i had the c d in my hand i just i remember more like recording it and being in the studio and just being being You know, I I didn't have the the best work ethic growing up. And when I got into that studio, it was like, it was like, okay, Rob, let's, we can go another hour. No, no Bill, it's 3am. No, no, we can go another hour. And so it was just very, very satisfying for me. And, And yeah, and then we just started playing more and it was just, you know, it was, it was a great time.
0: So you 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 found out that your work ethic or your lack of work ethic was just directly tied to whether there was something you were passionate about. Exactly. Exactly. Did it did it mean a lot to you to know that, oh, I do have work ethic. I just haven't found something that's worth Uh, working
1: towards. Absolutely. And then, you know, it went back to like, you know, I I I mean, I I did pretty well in school, but I remember like not doing homework in order to like learn a guitar solo but badly, but, you know, spending, I was always like up for spending a lot of time listening to, uh, you know, arranging harmonies or learning chords or.
0: So you guys released this, this album, what opportunities presented themselves now that you physically had something that could promote the band outside of just people that happen to catch you at a live show?
1: Well, like I said, that, that tragically hip show, um, which was you know and for us we never played a festival before and the the Molson Park backstage like it was it was paradise. there was free pinball games. That's how you like, know out, you outside it. you know there was there was lots of food we got like a case of beer and we were you know hanging around talking to other musicians. Um, uh, I, you probably don't know know this about me, but but I've known, I've known the Tragically Hips. I saw their second gig.
0: Their second gig.
1: I would have met Gore Downey, I think at the end of my first year or second year of university. And uh, it's funny because I, I just saw Tom Wilson was just here a couple of weeks ago. And he uh, he did a reading from his book and it was all about the Tragically Hip. And this was so awesome to me to hear what he was talking about. Cause he was just describing what I, you know, say just absolutely nailing what they were doing, that they were really enthusiastic that he had them play a set. He said, they, they played all these like obscure mid sixties stones albums. They played off the hook who plays off the hook. I'm like, yes, I like, I I'm a big fan of the 1965 Rolling Stones. Like, Albums like Now and Out of Our Head because Gord lent them to me and I taped them. And uh, I I think like if, if, if it hadn't been for the, the second guitar player, Paul, if he hadn't been one of their buddies, I probably could have joined the Tragically Hip. It's, it's not outside the realm of possibility. I, I, I remember jamming with them once after a gig and and first time i ever played like a real guitar and uh yeah those and those early shows were amazing um like i said they didn't they didn't do any hits they they just did transformed they used to do this Yardbird song called here it is and i remember just thinking like things were exploding and later, I listened to the, to the version the yard burst version. I'm like, that's not what I heard. <laughs> like they they just seemed to transform everything. And Gord was, you know, pretty riveting right right from the start.
0: The the first show I ever saw was my parents brought me to see the Tragically Hip with Um, Cheryl Crow and Ashley McIsaac. So this was I think it was another roadside attraction. I was so young that all I I remember just asking for pizza. Like, that's all I wanted at this concert. I I didn't know what was going on, but so maybe that's what kickstarted. My lifelong love of music was having just my osmosis, having the the hip being in that presence. Did, did you end up, uh, staying in touch with the, the members of the hip over the years as trouble charger blew up and, and the hip maintained that success?
1: Yeah, but mo- mostly Gord. Um, yeah. in the, the early nineties, I hung out with Gord a, a fair amount. He had, I was, we were both living pretty close by in the West end of Toronto. We had this place on college street, uh, with his wife. They had no, no kids then I used to hang out there a lot. Um, uh, Josh Finlayson from uh, Sky Diggers was there a lot. Yeah, it was, it- was Gord. You know, Gord is is an awesome guy, and and you know, I remember thinking that the last time I talked to him, I remember thinking that my our conversations together were were like a like a chess match, only in, in a in a fun non non stressful way. We were just both trying to kind of outwordsmith each other.
0: We has, we, has it um, has it meant a lot to you to see the outpouring of 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 love and and support. Uh, you know when he when he passes away, that you know all of Canada and and the world just showed so much love and, and just embraced him. And, and yeah, you know, it, it was like a celebration of his life as much as you could, you know?
1: Yeah. And it, it, Gord, Gord was a very special guy. He was just the ultimate sweetheart. I always describe him to people as, as saying that if, if, if you had a chance to have a 10 minute talk with Gord, you would, that 10 minutes would be you talking about yourself because that's the kind of guy Gord was. He would ask you about. He would find common ground, and 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 he would talk about you, not him.
0: As as we transition into the nineteen ninety five self title album, uh, I have some kind words sent in here. Uh, this is from someone that mastered both of those. Those albums, so NC Seventeen and self-titled. This is uh, Joa Carvalho, who's uh, you know one of the best. His his yep. bio has like two thousand albums he's worked on, and he's he's come up in uh, a different interview with some bands I've I've, I've uh, interviewed here. So this is what he has to say. He says Bill Priddle, the conscience of uh, of Trouble Charger, the Lennon of Trouble Charger. Truly underrated, amazing guitarist. I mastered the first two records. At the time, they were such a phenomenon. Really highly regarded in the indie community. All the rage. It really made my mastering career in the indie scene take off after working on those records. Working with those guys really did have a sense of working with the Canadian version of the Beatles, with Bill and Greg fronting their own blend of pop, feeding off of each other. Rosie, the bassist, was also an excellent player and uh, collaborator. I really admire Bill all these years. A real understated talent, but always very recognizable. So that's Joa Carvalho. Wow,
1: that's that's very sweet of him.
0: There you go. He's uh, reminiscing about the past. So the uh, self-titled album in 95, three singles, uh, Even Grable, Moral, uh, morale, and Sick Friend Called. Uh, so there's a, a top six single. There's a s- top 16 single. What was it like hearing your songs on the radio uh, for the first time? So maybe you heard songs on the radio from the previous album, but do you remember what it's like just yeah, when songs pop up, it's i
1: i i vaguely remember it. it was it was nice, but it was never it was never a big thing for me I, I i i've always been i've always been a guy that that for me making music is is for me so uh, for me it's more i i remember more recording those things and working on those things than hearing them on the radio that was just like the cherry on top to me the real satisfying thing was you know as an artist you 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 start with a blank piece of paper and you you end up with this and it's and it's never not
0: satisfying so it's more about the creation itself yeah i i remember seeing sting accept an award at probably the grammys and he just got up and he said uh, music is its own reward Yeah, it's nice to have the recognition, but the music itself is is why we're here. So that so that EP gets released in 1995, then re-released by RCA in 96, then released by BMG in 1997. So for our listeners that don't know kind of the, um, you know, what happens in the entertainment industry behind the scenes, the business side of it, why does an album get released multiple times?
1: Well, we we were on Sonic Onion, and and uh, so they put it out, and then we, you know, we we figured you know we should make the leap and go to a major label, and um, there was a kind of a mantra in the Canadian music business then that you don't want to sign with the Canadian label because otherwise you're you're never going to make it in America because you don't have anyone in the American office who's your champion. So we were in a situation where the, the president of, of BMG in Canada, just became the president of RCA in New York, uh, Bob Jameson. And, um, and the, and he brought the David Bendeth, the, infamous a and man with him and so he was our aR guy and and uh, I don't know if that was the best choice in retrospect uh David
0: Bendith he's a producer it's, as well isn't he David Bendeth.
1: yeah not yeah. for no reason that his nickname is band death oh
0: that's not a good nickname
1: <laughs> he was a he was a interesting guy he was very acerbic he was not the nicest guy he was a little diabolical uh but i remember he
0: sounds perfect for the music industry
1: yeah exactly but i remember bob jameson like when we met and and i was talking to bob dylan about him and and none of the other label presidents to me it sounded like they were big music fans or anything so uh so yeah we signed with rca and then they decided oh we should Because that was in the the craze, the indie craze, where every major label wanted to have, buy an an indie label so that they could, you know, give their indie acts credibility. So I can't remember the label that came out, but it was an offshoot of RCA. I think it was based in Seattle. And that's what it came out
0: on. Mm -hmm. Is this, is this the R.E.M. influence, where R.E.M. was huge on campus radio and then yeah. major labels come in and then yeah, exactly. they're signing all the, the, you know, the campus bands?
1: Yeah. And, and also the indie backlash of like, oh, you don't, you're, you're selling out. So instead of doing that, you soften the blow by saying, oh, well, we're not, you're not on on Sony, you're on this little cool
0: indie label that Sony bought. One thing that that instantly jumped out at me when I listened to that album is uh, the incredible harmonies. Uh, do do harmonies have they always come easy to you? You can hear harmonies, you can sing harmonies when someone else is singing lead. Is that just yeah. that's yeah, just I mean, always been always,
1: the way? It's always been my my thing. Um, uh, again, when we were when we were teenagers, we had a we had this gig in a gravel pit i decided we were going to do crosby stills and ash sweet judy blue eyes so i spent hours like teasing out the harmonies and then saying okay you sing this you sing this i sing this and uh and from the earliest you know the beatles had great harmonies i was a big fan of this this band called the letterman in the 60s uh i remember i wasn't i didn't get exposed to a lot of beach boys but I remember good vibrations for me was one of those songs that was just the Holy grail of awesomeness. And I, yeah, I always loved the, the the sound of voices together and I, and I could always figure out what was going on and how, how this was working.
0: Yeah. To me, when I, when I see a band live, if there's just the one singer and no other member is singing any harmonies, like that's yeah. what differentiates bands. For me, if there's harmony, if there's three part harmonies, it's like, okay, there's levels to this game.
1: And I used to love guys who like Elvis Costello and Bruce Springsteen that would harmonize with themselves so well, even though they had really distinctive voices and they weren't, you know, didn't sound like the kind of guys that might be like harmony singers. And, And, you know, that was the thing about having a band with two singers when you have a band with one singer and the other guy says, I can do backups. Well, maybe you can, but maybe it doesn't sound that good
0: what what would you say are the the pros and cons of being in a band with two singers i mean i guess some of the some of the pros i would think is like if if maybe one of you guys is starting to feel a little sick you don't have to cancel shows maybe shift the songs a bit so it's yeah. more the other one singing that's a pro uh what what else jumps out pros and cons
1: well uh, the 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 cons jump out because that We kind of because record companies hate bands with two singers, they hate it. They they, it it makes their brains go explode because that they're all about marketing. Like, we need one face, we need what give us the one face. So, I would say a a, a lot of the reason that 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 Treble Charger stopped was because RCA was basically playing politics. against us they were they, they were literally a split into factions of rca some people thought greg should be the guy and some people thought i should be the guy but everyone was in the agreement that there had to be one guy so there's definitely you know we kept saying what about the beatles
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean there's there's some great examples where it, it does work, but there's still tension. You know, someone like Blue Rodeo, it, you know, the way they do it. I, I had their drummer Glenn uh, for a two yeah. hour interview. And what what you can see with them is everything's divided across 50 50. Like if they have a the new album has ten songs, there's five songs from Greg Keeler and there's five yep. songs you know and um when they play live, it's like one person sings, then the next person sings yep. and the singles it's like single one is is you know one guy single two is the other guy like it's it's there's like a science to it for them yep. and and that works. but uh, you know it it, it seemed like with, with trouble charger um the the newer stuff it, it seemed like the singles were were mostly Greg and that's got to have some some tension there, you know.
1: Yeah, well and that's where we we you know got into the, the pop punk thing, which I wasn't completely behind. Um, but you know that's that's the way it goes. Uh I, I mean at the same time, you know, I'm I'm I couldn't be more proud of, of songs like American Psycho and Brand New Low that that I you know it was those songs were really a collaborative effort between Greg and me and, and Matt Hyde, our producer. So is you know, some of the most satisfying work I've done.
0: So so that album, so still self-titled in nine, 1995. So uh, that gets the band its first Juno nomination for Best Alternative Album. This is in 1997. That's the first of five nominations. Does that one specifically have a special place in your heart uh, f- for it being the first and having your country acknowledge your, your talent and your hard work?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think... Was that our first one? I thought for, for which album?
0: Uh the the self-title was the first right, right. one, I believe. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because I, I think I remember the, the Juno's are always fun. And, and and don't get me wrong, we're we're bitter about the fact that we went 0 for five. I'd love to have that freaking statuette, but uh yeah. I I remember we were at uh, we were at that Juno's and it was the night before where they had the the more special, you know, those kind of categories. And um, uh, Denny Doherty from the Mamas and the Papas was being inducted into the to the Hall of Fame, and um, and Michelle Phillips was there, and I think she gave a speech. And they played uh, uh, California Dreamin' on the PA, and I was with my manager in uh, one of the back hallways of the venue, and. Michelle Phillips came along and I said, Hey, you know, I'm a big fan. I want you to know, like, you know, when they played, cause I knew that she'd co-written California Dreaming. And, I said, you know, I want you to know that when, when they played that on the PA, the whole, the whole venue went, cause that's such a great song. And she said, aren't you sweet and kiss me on the cheek. And that's one of my favorite Juno memories.
0: That might be one of the highlights of your life. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy. So starting with this album, Every, every album you guys released was nominated for best either rock album or best alternative album at the Juno's. Like you guys went four for four for the nomination, yeah, yeah. which is pretty sweet. Um, it, it makes me think I've, I've interviewed two of the Finger Eleven members and it was on their seventh nomination that they finally won. So they went 0-6, 0-6 and, uh, and, and then finally, finally at the end. So those Juno's, man, they'll get you. But, you know, yeah. it's, it's hard enough just to get nominated. Yep. Yeah. So. Uh, After that, 97, you release Maybe It's Me. This is the big breakout album, four singles, Friend of Mine, How She Died, Red, the re-recorded version, and Ever She Flows. So Friend of Mine, you know, at this point, 97, uh, how old am I? So 85, 95. So I'm 12 years old and Friend of Mine is like undeniable. Uh, It's out there. Um, What was it like to have like an undeniable radio hit so you had radio play before but this was like a legit you know this is a hit it's it's undeniable i was again the
1: the those things never seemed to matter so much to me i mean you know touring got easier you know we we played to more people which is which is always always fun um yeah it's it's you know, I, I don't remember the, the, the big shows so much as, you know, a show that stands out for me was the first time we played on a weekend headlining the Rivoli in Toronto, tiny place, and just having the feeling that, wow, this place is packed, which is like literally 88 people, and they're all really, really into it.
0: There's the back room and the front room, right? At the yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, the, the little back room there. So I don't, yeah, I could. It was just, you know, it's the air you breathe. So you don't really.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you have this? So this album is also your first gold album in Canada. Do you yeah. feel the same way with a gold album as you feel with uh, a hit single on the radio, which is it is what it is? No, I the gold album
1: was definitely nice. And, and you know, I, I think maybe that's our best record that to me it's the the midpoint it's before we went really pop punk and i feel like there's just a lot of good songs on that record and uh i also feel like i remember um having a rough mix or or an a unmastered mix and playing it for um um uh, uh, Brendan mcguire who was uh was a sound guy for sloan at the time he recorded the sloan between the bridges album and i was playing him a song and he said he said finally a, a a producer that that knows how to make greg's voice sound good because he you know he songs like friend of mine and and uh um was it Shorefire, maybe i can't remember now <laughs> but it, it's you know everyone sounded good on that and and that was our first time working with a with a big producer lou giordano uh, we we spent three months in Boston, and it was it was a great time. It was a uh, this really cool studio called uh, Fort Apache, and uh, you know, first time like having just you know, amazing gear. Like, oh, there's
0: a here's a twelve string. Oh, here's
1: a here's a Vox AC30. Wow, though that sounds really good together.
0: Yeah. One thing that stands out with that album is, is there is a more polished, more commercial sound. Uh, That has to do with a a bigger budget from a major label that you're in a better studio, better engineers, producers, mixers, better equipment. Is that, I guess that's the the reason. And
1: also, and also, you know, I think that that album and the subsequent two albums with Matt Hyde, you know, taught Greg and I both how to be a producer. So, you know, having an outside ear is so important. Uh, it's funny because I have the same thing with bands now. Um, there was one of the songs, I can't remember, but one of the mid-tempo songs of mine on, on Maybe It's Me. Uh, I don't know what it's called. And we played it for Lou and Lou said, this thing you're calling the chorus, that's not the chorus, that's the bridge this thing that you think is the pre-chorus, that's the chorus. And I went, no, you're crazy. <laughs> and I went, oh yeah, you're totally right. This is better. That, that, that bridge should only, that what we're calling the chorus should only happen once. And I've done the identical thing with bands today because because when you're a young band, you may know how to write melodies, you may know how to write a whole song, but you, you don't have that depth of knowledge about how songs work, and, and how to make them better. And, and Lou was, Lou was great at that. He was like, you know, that's, that's what I do today as a producer. Like I tell people, I'm, I just take the parts that are good. And I want more of that and take, take the parts that are bad. I want
0: less of that. You're like, you're like carving a sculpture and, and yeah. taking the best stuff that's in there. The, so the song Red was re-recorded for this album, releases a single, becomes a top 20 single. It's one of Trouble Charger's signature songs. It's it's my favorite Trouble Charger song. And I have two, two things I got to share. And you, you've probably already heard this, but uh, Red placed at number eight on the greatest Canadian songs of all time in 1996 by the uh, the, the music magazine Chart. And then the CBC had it on their list of the 50 best Canadian songs of the nineties. So some pretty, pretty, pretty big accolades. Um, What, what was the decision to re-record and re-release that one song as a single out of all the other songs that had come before it? That's the one that was chosen. Uh, Well, I, I think,
1: you know, it's, the song's a bit of an albatross for me because it's, it's one of the, it's literally one of the first songs I, 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 written um like after that the bad album that we ditched that i mentioned i i read must have been one of the three next songs that i wrote um and we love that early version it has a very bad sounding um a big muff solo on it that i wasn't so crazy about but it had a certain thing to it i think i feel like the vocal might be a little stronger than the re-release but it, it, it kind of worked out poorly for us ha- having it because it was people in Toronto heard it all the time, and Toronto rules the, the music industry. So when we re recorded it and re released it, the city of Toronto was like, Well, we've heard this before, we're not going to play. So, and Toronto Radio, country. So because they were a little less than enthusiastic, I feel like it could have been a bigger single than it was, but when the the indie version was never heard in the other parts of the country. And then that version was mostly heard in the other parts of the country. But, you know, what are you going to do? I I think, you know, everyone, everyone at RCA, they, they're like, there's no way you're not putting this on. Like,
0: and we're like, okay, cool. Hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's such an, an undeniable song. Do you do you, as a guitarist, do you have like an app on your phone or a hard drive on your computer that just has all these guitar riffs and guitar ideas that you can go to and pluck from? Or is are you like some of my other guests where it's all up in here?
1: Uh yeah, not then, I don't think I did. I, I do that a lot now. Um But yeah, back, I don't think I did that at all then. I think I just
0: well, it it hasn't been that long that we've had, you know, phones yeah. that have apps capable of exactly. that and even computers, you know, Pro Tools and all that before it's if you wanted to record anything, you had to get to a studio and pay yeah. big bucks.
1: Well, I had I always had four tracks, so I would probably starting with maybe it's me. I would I would do four track demos.
0: What? so for, for our listeners that like the equipment side of music, uh, are you able to share the, you know, guitars that you use, the pedals you use, the amps you use to get kind of your signature sound?
1: Yeah. Well, well, my sound for the, for the first two treble charger records was, was uh, I mean, I have a, I have a Fender Stratocaster that I bought in 1989, which is, which is my, Kind of my main guitar um uh i also had a, a charvel surfcaster around that time I, I used that a lot um but i i used a a, a boss pedal called the metal zone good name is, which is it's a very a lot of people think it's the greatest pedal ever and a lot of people think it's one of the worst sounding pedals ever and i remember when we Matt Hyde our producer when he, he said he said wow you use the metal zone in the way you're not supposed to use it because it's you're supposed to do metal with it and it had this very uh, extensive uh, uh EQ section where you could you could dial out that that mid-range to get that horrible scooped metal sound but I was just trying to get a, a Neil Young Crazy Horse sound so I I reefed that mid-range and that was that's the distorted sound in red and and in everything so just the either the charvel or the or the uh the strat into a fender amp with the metal zone and maybe maybe like a boss super overdrive in front of it that would make the metal zone sound a little less processy the last time i picked up a metal zone i was like oh yeah yeah this is great i'm like wow that is awful (laughs) it had this kind of lack of
0: bottom end it was but it, it, somehow I made it work. If if the video game Guitar Hero came around and asked for just one treble charger song that you could submit so people could get their plastic guitars and play along, which treble charger song do you submit? Red's got some cool parts and some cool riffs.
1: What yeah, do you I think you know. submit? I, f- I would say maybe American Psycho because it has that, Catchy riff, it's yeah. That catchy riff, yeah, with the with the it's with a electric mistress flanger, and
0: that's a that's a good choice. Uh, in in two thousand, you guys released Wide Awake Board. Uh, this has three singles. We've been talking about American Psycho, Brand New Low, and Business. So this is now your first platinum album, top ten. Another Juno nomination. Uh, this gets two Juno nominations because not just album, but also single for "American Psycho." Is it fair to say that "American Psycho" uh, was the band's biggest hit period of, of of your career? And why do you think people? If so, why do you think people just love that song so much?
1: Yeah, I would I would say that's our biggest hit.
0: I just think it. it,
1: it like I say. The, Greg and and Matt Hyde and I, we, we worked long and hard. You know, I think one of the reasons that album turned out so well is because we did a lot of pre-production. We were also, RCA was, was, you know, this was our second album and the first album had not been successful in America. So it was very put up or shut up. And they, they put us through the ringer. they, they wouldn't even commit to making the whole album. They made us do it in two halves, so which was really expensive because you had to do a drum setup twice, and it was frighteningly expensive. I think that record, I think it costs five hundred thousand American dollars to make. We we went to Sound City in L.A., which was amazing. We had Joe Barisi, who was like the super uber producer. He he was just there as, as drum tech. He was just tuning the drums and and helping set up the drums. We had we had Rami from The Wallflowers playing keyboards. Um, it was just a great time. We were, you know, we were living in, in corporate apartments in L.A., coming to the studio every day and making music. And it was just so, yeah. And, and I'm very, like I said, I'm very proud of, I wrote a lot of the lyrics to American Psycho. That I thought were, you know, I was very, very happy with and and that that riff. Actually, it, it I I give our David Bendith, our AR guy, a lot of credit. He he's the one we, we recorded it a completely different arrangement and it was actually the wood completely done. And we edited it to, to put that guitar lick, that guitar riff at the top of the song. It was just gonna start with that in retrospect was like wow it's terrible beginning but he could he could see that and he said Oh, you need to do this and we're like you're crazy and then he
0: we somehow made that edit and it it sounds great is sound city in LA is that the studio that uh, Dave Grohl made the movie sound city yeah and it's like Rage Against Machine recorded their debut there and uh yeah so uh, many great Fleetwood Mac I think Fleetwood Mac Tom Petty yeah it's a Um, I remember the the
1: the giant live room and and there's a grand piano and, and someone said, yeah, only Tom Petty uses that. That's fair enough. I think maybe for the album, my cheap trick heaven tonight was recorded there. Um, And it was very, it was not very glamorous. It looked its age. It was very rough looking and that was, it was a lot of fun
0: hanging out there. The the success of the band allowed you guys to tour around the world. Were there any favorite places that you like to visit when you went on tour?
1: Well, around there was not around the world. We were just in North America. Um, Halifax has always been one of my favorite places to play. Uh, the people there love music so much. Um, you know, in the in the nineties, I was in this magic indie bubble. I I never heard any. Salt and pepper or, or like I can't hum a Sublime song. All I all I listened to was Sonic Youth and Pavement and Guided by Voices and Stereo Lab. And I remember one particular tour. Every time we we'd show up for sound check and it would be Offspring, keep them separated. And it'd be like, oh, if I hear that song one more time, I'm going to kill myself. And I remember arriving at the venue in in Halifax and Stereolab was playing and I just went,
0: Oh, my people.
1: Yeah. And you know, with the music you hear before you go on makes such a big difference. It could just make you have, have a great show and, and the Halifax audiences were always great. Uh, I always loved playing uh, Portland and Seattle. Uh, I, New York was always amazing. Um, we played, Two or three times at this little room called the Mercury Lounge with amazing sound system, amazing sounding stage. Um,
0: yeah, we, we, those are the ones that stand out. Um, one of the one of the
1: one of the gigs that stands out for me is we, because we opened for the Foo Fighters on a big U.S. tour on their second album, and we were playing uh, we were playing L.A. And I had round glasses like this, different ones, they were even more kind of dorky architect glasses at the time. And, and, and we were, we were first on the bill. So we were about to go on. I was setting up and people in the, someone in the crowd was heckling me. And I, I still marveled the, the back thinking like it didn't phase me one bit. We'd been on the road forever. And, and I just kind of looked at, looked at this guy like, Oh yeah, MF. Like, who's on the stage right now, huh?
0: You were battle and tested at that point.
1: I was bad. So it, instead of like going, oh no, I was just like, it. It empowered me to be. I had like a fun, angry show that night.
0: You you channeled that energy. Was it just a, a Foo Fighters fan that didn't care about who the? I don't know. Yeah, I
1: guess so. Yeah, it was it was that tour was a uh, Foo Fighters and talk show. I don't think you remember talk show. That was the Stone Temple Pilots offshoot Hmm. when Scott Whalen was, was in rehab and they hooked up with their high school buddy that played in a cover band. So he was the singer and, and, and that, that tour, we didn't hang out with the Foo Fighters much because it was mostly like really old, big 4,000 seat theaters in the U S and they were always set up on one side of the, the the Foo Fighters dressing room was would be on one side of the venue and our dressing room and talk show would be on the other side. And those guys were just sweethearts the DeLeo brothers and and Eric, the drummer, they just like, I think like, uh, Dean DeLeo went to guitar center in LA to buy a pedal for Greg. So I think a pedal broke down. He's like, Oh, I, I got you this boss
0: distortion and, it's nice to hear those stories of the, the good guys in the industry.
1: Yeah, yeah. They were just a, a joy to be with.
0: We have a, a fan question. This is from Amanda Luciano. Uh, she asks, what is your craziest or most memorable fan interaction? It could be sweet, funny, or crazy. Uh, uh, fan interaction. Nobody threw their underwear or anything?
1: I don't think so. I don't know I was a I was not much of a fan interaction guy Uh, so my my story is kind of lame just you know being at some some weird uh, gig in Toronto outside somewhere like where there wasn't really a backstage area and this this woman came up to me with her daughters and said I I know you're the one that doesn't really like to talk to fans, but could you sign this for me? And I was like, yeah, sure, sure. No problem. It's very
0: considerate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I was that guy. I kind of hid from the fans.
0: Would you, would you say you're an introvert or that's not what it is? Yeah.
1: I would say I'm an introvert. Yes
0: okay okay um do your songs usually come together in a specific order when you're writing so for example some people just write a ton of lyrics and eventually put it to music some guitarists are always writing music and then they put a melody to it and then eventually fit words within that melody or do your songs just some of them start with guitar some with lyrics some with vocals
1: yeah i think it's it's very varied with me um some songs um red i remember read very vividly because i had a, a a black uh it was by these kind of black notebooks and uh and i would just write things that hopefully i would i would come up with a turn of phrase and i would write it down i remember at the bottom of the page on the left, I had written, saw you looking for a light face painted cigarette white. And I wrote that down. I closed the book. And then however many days later, I looked at that and was like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. And then I think the rest came pretty fast. Um, uh, the first song on Prittle Concern, Union of Concerned Scientists. I was, uh, I was watching cbc and there was an interview with uh the uh the president of the union of concerned scientists and his name was dr robert pollard and robert pollard is the singer from guided by voice is one of my favorite bands so i th- i was like oh yeah union of concerned scientists that's good i wrote the entire lyrics in about three minutes and i looked at it and i thought wow, that's really good but I do not know how to put this to music. And then months later I was like, "Oh, I could do this." Uh, other times I I do a, uh, other times I do a, the complete opposite approach. Sometimes I will write an entire song with no lyrics and no melody and I'll wait for like, okay, I'll I'll, I'll come up with that later. I've done that on two or three of these pointless songs it was like,
0: okay, I'll just, I've, I've got something good here. It'll, it'll come to me. Do you still have some of those that you're still waiting <laughs> where this, yeah. the music's done yep. and you're just waiting?
1: <laughs> yeah. There's two or three pointless songs that I'm like, you know, this is a good backing track.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have, have you ever had, Uh, songs come to you so easily that you just felt like the conduit. You just felt like the medium that it was passing through. So you, you might call it, I don't know, you know, God gives you a song or the infinite intelligence or source or however you want to say it.
1: Yeah. I think, I think any, any songwriter that has that happen to them, they're, they're always going to be describe themselves as an agnostic and not an atheist because it's something, uh, uh christ is on the lawn from maybe it's me i i remember three in the morning i woke up my ex-wife like you have to hear this right now because it just boom it came to be and i think i wrote the whole
0: song in 20 minutes or something those are you know when like you mentioned you, you went a few years with some writer's block so when you get those gifts you must really appreciate them yeah yeah
1: it's well, like I say, there, there hasn't been those kind of songs since those days. Now I, I I toil
0: and sweat, but so we're we're all the way to the final uh, trouble charger album. So this is Detox in two thousand and two, and then we'll move into everything else: Broken Social Scene, Don Vale, all that stuff. So uh, Detox, three singles, hundred million. Don't believe it all. Ideal waste of time. This is your second uh, gold album, another top ten album, another juno nomination did you feel massive pressure after the success of the previous album that went platinum and had such a big hit with uh, american psycho
1: well this was i didn't really want to make this record things were like i said greg and i've known each other since we were infants so we weren't really seeing eye to eye all that much and uh and um, this coincides with broken social scene because I, because before that, I'm going to say probably the downtime after Wide Awake Board. Um, my my ex wife was in the publishing business and she worked for Kevin Drew's dad, David Drew, and uh, and she was talking to Kevin one day and. You know, Kevin's a big indie rock guy. And he said, him, your, your, your boyfriend's an NC-17? He, he was always like, I don't recognize Treble Charger, NC-17. And uh, so he, he the, the album before the first Broken Social Scene record, uh, KC Accidental, which was him and Charles Spearin from Broken Social Scene. They were making a record in the basement of CIUT in Toronto. And Kevin said, come and, uh, come and play on it. I remember distinctly, Charles is one of the nicest guys ever, but he was an indie rock guy. And when I got there, I could, I could tell from his look, like, this was not my idea. I, this, this is some, like, major label sellout rock guy playing on our record. This, this isn't that. And, and uh, But I did a couple, I did a pass on this 18-minute song, and Kevin said, yeah, no, let's, let's do one more, less distorted guitar. And I'm like, well, I thought there were good bits. Did you, you want to play it back? He said, Bill, the song's 17 minutes long. There's no playbacks, (laughs) which I thought was a great. So then we started um, getting together in Kevin's basement in uh, uh, Parkdale. Uh, Kevin, uh, Justin Peroff, the drummer, Brendan Canning, and Charles and me. And we just, it was just improv jamming. Um, And one of the first... uh, I don't know, like well before it was Broken Social Scene. We did this gig at uh, uh, Ted's Wrecking Yard, and it was just. I remember the set list. One one of the songs was just D, it's in D, <laughs> and I was trying. And and Charlie and I had a really great kind of kind of indie Almond Brothers rapport going, and it was just it was just good fun, and and I played on that a little on the first uh, first Broken Social Scene record uh uh feel good lost
0: yeah
1: yeah i remember years later i think i'd had some drinks i was listening to a song and i was like wait a second someone's ripping off my thing here what the oh right it's me (laughs) so when we made detox we were uh, uh uh rob sanzo that recorded the first two um uh albums we did uh it was a place on Dundas and he'd now had had this much nicer studio in the Darling building in the, in the uh, fashion district. So uh, on Spadina, just south of Queen and uh, we were using Matt again and he came here. So we, we didn't have so much awesome gear, but Matt brought a little bit of gear and uh, we would, and, and we didn't have the budget. We didn't have the big major label budget for pre-production. So we didn't get a chance to like, as Matt said, we didn't get the chance to treble chargerize Greg's songs. They were kind of like, this is what they are. And and we're going to go with that. And I wasn't, it was kind of stressful. And it was very much kind of like, for the first time you thought like, oh, we have to sound like this. And I would finish and then I would go around the corner to uh this little studio at uh just around the corner from the cameron house and broken social scene we're recording you forgot it and people and i remember one night they were recording uh uh, the brendan song with the, the hand clapping i can't remember what it's called uh and it was just like feedback it was just and i was like wow you guys are so lucky you get to do whatever you want and then and I pretty much, you know, my, my wife and I had a, had a baby and I was pretty much doing this album for the money. We'd got, we got new management. We had this big Uber manager and I thought, okay, all I want to do is do one headlining hockey rink tour, like the bare naked ladies. And then you, you, you know, you, you go out for three weeks and you come home with $400,000 each. And then I'm going to buy a house in Toronto Uh, We never, never quite got there because it coincided with the end of music. You know, the the albums were no longer selling. It was the beginning of of of, Napster uh, and all that. Napster and all that. iTunes. 2002, 2003, and so I remember, you know, listening to Broken Social Scene, thinking like, "Yeah, you get to do whatever you want, but you know, you guys are going to sell five five thousand copies in Canada, and we're going to sell. I mean, our last album was." We sold a hundred thousand. We're going to sell two hundred thousand this time. Well, in the end, I have a very beautiful, broken social scene gold record on my wall. Both, <laughs> both of your
0: albums went gold, but in very different yeah. ways.
1: So, so that that taught me a valuable lesson: never make musical decisions about money ever again. Again, possibly to my detriment, but.
0: Yeah. I hear you. The uh, we, we have a fan question here. This is to do with um, so after you left the band in 2003, um, the band itself disbanded in 2006 and then you guys reunited in 2012 for a few shows. So we have a question from Mike Lamone. Um, What brought the band back together in 2012 and was there an adjustment period in playing together again, or was it like a bike you just hop back on?
1: Um, I think, like I said, our, my relationship with Greg was pretty fractured. And I remember, you know, be, being in a, everyone talks about it now. No one talked about it then being in a, in a band on the road is is really bad for your mental health and everyone struggles and everyone deals with it in their own way. And, uh, you know, it got to the point where Greg and I were not communicating much and we, didn't really want to be around each other. Uh, We were probably both resentful of each other for, for whatever reason. Like I said, RCA had played us off against each other, um, to the point where like, you know, the, 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 the RCA guy that, that, that wanted me to be the guy Greg hated him and (laughs) the the guy that wanted Greg to be the guy I, I didn't like him. And, and, uh, And I said, okay, I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, And, um, and I thought at the time, like, you know, I could, I could probably hang out with Rosie again, but I don't, I don't want to see Greg for, for years. And it turned to be, turned out to be completely false because we're basically family. So it's, it's kind of, we both kind of came to the realization, like when, when you're visiting home, and you you go to visit the other guy's parents because <laughs> you want to say hi it's pretty much you know maybe maybe this is a relationship that that should be repaired and uh and I'd kind of hit the wall in, in my so-called cooking career and I was like I'm done with this and like so I called up Greg and and we had kind of a tearful reunion and 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 we said let's let's do this again and uh And we decided to do it just, just the two of us and and get hired guys just to, just to, because we didn't want to go back to that, that dysfunction of, of the four people and their, everyone's competing agendas. And, and, uh, and then it just became, and it just, we kind of said like, you know, this is going to be fun. We're going to make some money and we're going to have fun and it's going to be easy. like this decision-making is going to be easy if we both agree we want to do something; we'll do it, and otherwise, we won't do it. So, it's been we haven't done a show for a little while, but but I'm I'm not calling the band dead. We're, we've been both kind of busy doing our own thing. We're both back in St. Marie now, but uh, but
0: uh, so you're saying there's a
1: chance there's a there's a chance we're we're ex- very 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 slowly working on new music. Uh, been sitting on a couple things. Um, it's again when you've been <laughs> when you've been through the ringer like we have and had so many people say, "Oh, this is going to be this is it, this is the one," and it never really happens, and you're you get a little gun shy. So, so we're trying to make we're trying to create a, a stress free thing for us to 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 put out new music, and and I I hope it'll happen, and and but certainly we will we will play gigs together again. I think we have. Uh, a show that we booked that got canceled by the pandemic that I think we're going to do
0: next summer. Amazing. So final treble charger question. If in the future, I'm talking like 200, 400, 500 years from now, if most of today's music has faded from public consciousness, but you're able to have just one treble charger song still be available still be around that people are playing what song do you choose to best represent the band so it doesn't have to be a single it doesn't have to be the most popular songs but you yourself if you could put the band's music in a time capsule and it's still around what song do you choose to best represent the band? well
1: that's a tough one i don't know if i could narrow it down to one i mean red would be a good example um ever she flows might not be bad or I might even go with.
0: We'll we'll give um, you an EP. Then you can you can have a, a three song five song EP that's still being played in five hundred years. Okay, my my my
1: EP would be Red, Ever She Flows, and um, Trinity Bellwoods from NC Seventeen. Just because that was a very collaborative effort, B- B- Greg's song, but I wrote most of the lyrics and 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 also that song was. That song was possibly
0: the most fun I've ever had in the studio. That's a good three song EP and uh, they'll be able to listen to it. Just uh, it, it can just come to them because that's where we're at with technology. Exactly, yeah. 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 They know, probably you know, have the a, pump, a chip or something.
1: A chip. Yeah, exactly. Perfect so, sound.
0: Yeah. So let's uh, let's move into Broken Social Scene. You've already mentioned how that came to be, that they're around the corner and there was a connection. Um, So uh, the 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 first two albums that you contributed to, the second one that went gold, that that won a Juno Award. Um, Yeah. So it won for Alternative Album of the Year. Yeah. As, as someone that contributed but isn't officially a member of the band, is that considered winning a Juno? How does that work? Well, I I would tell people that I've won a Juno. I'm just saying. I was
1: I was at the Junos and I did go on stage to accept it with them, but I don't have a statuette, so I'm somewhere in the middle. I I always refer to myself as a founding non-member of Broken Social Scene. Uh, one of my biggest regrets, I I think if I'd if I'd learned saxophone or trumpet in high school, I would be in broken social Scene. no question, because they always want guys that can that can multitask, and they always want guys that can become the the horn section, like like Charlie.
0: They've got enough guitarists, I suppose. Yeah, they've got enough guitarists. Yeah, but yeah, yeah.
1: it's been a great. Uh, uh, you know, Kevin's an awesome guy, and 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 I knew Brent, Brendan Canning. He's. I would say the first champions of NC 17 in Toronto were Brendan Canning and Dave Bookman. So, you know, I've, I've known Canning forever. We, you know, we did one of our first cross Canada tours with head in the summer of 95. Um, and they're all, they're all great people. And, uh, I got, uh, I got, uh, I was lucky enough to, to go on when Kevin did a solo album called uh, spirit. If I uh, did a European tour with him, which was just amazing fun. And it was, again, it was, it spoke to the like, you know, treble charge. We're all mostly Sault Ste. Marie guys. We grew up in, you know, very toxic masculinity time. So I just remember being on the tour bus and every day everyone hugged each other good morning and i thought like wow this is amazing in treble charger there was no touching
0: yeah there was a no touching rule yeah so i i have some kind words here from brendan canning of broken social scene so he he, he i don't know him that well but he clearly has a sense of humor so he says bill knows that i think he's a legend Ask him if he has reasonable accommodations. If I come to Sault Ste. Marie with my girlfriend and Chihuahua.
1: Jeez. <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could, I, you know, yeah, I could come in the summer. I think I can get my, get you put up at my brother's cottage. Uh, I myself don't have much reasonable accommodation, but I could probably make it work. Uh, I never really liked your Chihuahua. Sorry
0: no no pets allowed that's too funny that's too funny so uh, th- i have a little blurb here written about broken social scene that i think you'll appreciate so it says the collective and the respective projects have had a broad influence on the alternative music and indie rock uh, seen scene during the early 21st century in 2021 pitchfork listed the band um pitchfork listed the band among the most important artists of the last 25 years so my question is how amazing is it to not only be a part of that but be there at, basically at the inception of it
1: it was it was so i remember when we i i mean i because we did detox um when we finished detox and they finished you forgot it in people then i was touring detox and essentially like lost my place in in the broken social scene band and and andrew whiteman came in and um uh but it was i had a i had a copy of the i had like five cds of the record when i went out on tour and so like the coolest promoters and music people that i found was like okay this one's for you and i remember thinking like I would say to people, this is going to be the next big thing in Canadian indie rock. Trust me, I will stake my reputation on this. Well, I was almost right. I just wasn't right about the Canadian part because they became a indie rock phenomenon phenomenon everywhere. You know, not just not just Canada. So I wasn't thinking big enough. But it was. I w- I'm really proud of my small. I do the the uh, Pacific theme arpeggio. Uh, thing and uh and so whenever I get a chance to play with them I usually jump up for that song and uh yeah they're just great great people to work with and and uh yeah it's just a I'm very very proud of my association
0: so moving on through the discography man there's so much you've had such a a lengthy career with so much stuff going on so we're moving on to Don Vale so this is after a move to Dunville, Ontario. So this is around 2003. Can you share the story of how you come to be a part of that project?
1: Yeah, um, I moved to moved to Dunville. So uh, I left Travel Charger and uh, my ex-wife and I had a baby and we thought, like, let's move out of Toronto. And back then, if you draw a circle, an hour and a half, away from toronto and you look at all the places the cheapest real estate is dunville and her parents were living very close by on lake erie as so we moved to this beautiful 60 uh, year old cedar house on a double lot in this sleepy town and uh, and as i started to meet people there everyone said oh you got to meet this guy mitch oh you got to meet mitch oh you got to meet mitch and uh he was working at this golf club and uh i don't play golf much anymore but it was, I actually became a member of, I, I got to play golf like once or twice a week, which was awesome. And I met Mitch and uh, I, I don't know how it happened, but immediately it was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to play in your band. And we had this, uh, we both miss it because it's where I wrote almost all of Prittle Concern. They had a, a rehearsal room in a barn about 20 minutes out of town and so it was a barn that they built a room inside with just plywood walls and cheap plywood floors. And like, it was just a ugly, ugly room with like Pixies posters on the wall. And it was just like a songwriting machine. Cause you were so isolated. We were probably 300 meters from the farmhouse and You'd, you'd go out for a smoke and, and there'd be fireflies and deer going by. And it was, you know, you went out there and there was just this ugly room. So all you could do was make music. And so we both wrote a lot of songs there and we used to rehearse that we had no bass player, just the drummer, Dave Dunham and, and Mitch Bowden and myself uh, every Monday. And those are some of the most fun rehearsals I've ever had and that the 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 whole project for me was just every gig was fun uh mitch is just an incredibly talented guy an amazing singer amazing songwriter his growth over these three albums has just been amazing their their last album is a masterpiece and this this first but first one. Um, and we got to go, we worked with Jordan's out of Rosny. He mixed it and we did some of the recording there. And I hadn't seen Jordan since we they opened a show for us in like uh, Alabama, I think. And so we, we had a great time reuniting and, and uh, Jordan's a great guy. We, we share a lot of the same musical taste. We're both obsessed with ZZ top and a lot of 70 stuff. And uh, yeah, Mitch was just, you know, this was like, I call it melodic math rock. It's kind of evolved into more of a like indie pop thing now. But the first album was all about drop D, lots of distortion, and and the the shows for me were just couldn't couldn't have been more fun. Every show was just like,
0: this is this is so great. The uh, the notes that I took down while listening to the first album, I put. Cool guitar work, great harmonies and melodies, some different time signatures, unique production, really enjoyed it. It sounds like a band having fun with no musical res- restrictions. Is that an accurate description? That's kind of what yeah. you said about it was just so much fun. Yeah,
1: it's it's all Mitch. I mean, I play on a little bit of stuff just like, oh, maybe, you know, since you because they they pretty much had all of it recorded before I joined. And then I was like, "Oh, I've added this part. Maybe I could do that in the studio." So we went, like I said, for a weekend in, in outside Ottawa to Jordan's Studio, and uh, and also the drummer Dave Dunham. Um, he's he, he. I think what he does mostly now is video editing, but uh, I feel like he's like he he's one of the best drummers in Canada. He's so incredibly solid. So I I. I I played in their band and they became the, the Prittle Concern band Uh, and the the three of us and like always in search of a bass player, (laughs) we uh, cycled through bass players, but uh, yeah, Dave Dunham, like, you know, the, the Justin Peroff played the drums on the Prittle Concern and, and some of it's pretty complicated and Dave would just be like, Oh yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Like no problem. Just the most solid drummer. Yeah. Great guys.
0: My, my three favorite songs from that first album, black book page. I knew this would happen and Hobson unite. And I have a yeah. quote here from one of my all time favorite bands. So right above me here is winter sleep. That's one of their albums yeah. from yeah. the East coast. You mentioned the good music scene in the East coast. So um, I got a quote from their guitarist, Tim Dion. And something that ties everyone together is their current bass player is Chris bell. Yes. played on on the yeah. album so this is what tim dion says he says um bill is a fantastic musician and someone i admire um as a musician and as a person the Don Vale record he made with chris bell is really rad i'm sure if i asked chris he'd have some good stories to share that include bill so he yeah. he, he said i asked the wrong uh winter sleep member uh that chris is the one that would have uh all, all the all the amazing stories to well share. no
1: it's funny because um at some point, 2004, four, two thousand five, we uh, Don Vale. We drove out to Halifax to play the Halifax Pop Explosion, and Winter Sleep were there, and uh, Tim and I spent a really awesome afternoon just wandering around and having coffee and just having a great time. And I, I always, I always cherish that. So it's, it's, that's great that he, that he said that. And Winter Sleep, yeah, great band, uh, obviously. Joel, one of the best, again, one
0: of the best drummers in Canada. Um, He's playing with Billy Talent right now, which is, Ah, of course, that makes sense. Yeah. They needed a drummer because uh, it's the same drummer for Billy Talent and Alexis on fire and Alexis on fire has been, they're both on tour right now. So there's the conflict. So in slips uh, Lowell Campbell from winter sleep. So,
1: yeah. Oh, and that's the same, the, you know, the, the Alexis on fire guys, they, they're, Buddies with Donville because it's the same kind of area because Dunville is about halfway between St. Catharines and, and Hamilton.
0: So now we're talking the the prittle Concern. So this is starting after Trouble Charger. You start writing this stuff and it, it takes a few years to come out. So you start writing in 2004 yep. and it isn't until 2007 that it comes out. Did it just take that long to write the music or was there industry related delays or?
1: Uh, no, I just I, I took too long. Um, some of the songs that the song I like to smoke, I wrote that. Again, in a very short time, because we were, we were on tour, we were in Edmonton, and our tour manager was from Edmonton, and we were on our way to the airport, and we stopped at his apartment, and we were uh, we were waiting in the van for him, and, and he was taking forever, and we were like, he's having sex with his girlfriend right now, isn't he? And so I, I went out. For a smoke and I was literally I like to smoke before the airport run and the, the whole almost the whole song came to me uh, and uh, so there was a lot um, there was a song uh, one of the songs was going to be on detox but Matt said you know what this is too out there given the kind of band you've become it's too too many weird chords it's not going to fit i was like okay fine and so so this was kind of you know i didn't have so many songs on detox so it was it was was sort of my george harrison all things must pass i've got all these songs that left over that didn't have a place we were going to put we actually recorded union of concerned scientists for for a record and it didn't come matt wanted to do just a solo acoustic and it didn't come out that great so uh and, yeah, and then I so moved to Dunville and started writing again, you know, like I said, in this great barn. And, uh, and then I just sort of did it like my wife was working, so I was at home with, with our baby, um, and I would just go on, like, weekends to – I just, for some reason, decided to, to do it with four different producers. So I did five or six songs with Howie Beck, um, two songs with John Critchley from 13 engines um, four songs, I think with uh, um, uh, that two minute miracles guy in, in London, Got, I'm blanking on his name should have gone through this in my head before. Um, That's all and one, and one with Dave Neufeld to produce the broken social scene records. And that was, that was one too many. Kevin drew put it. Well, he said Prittle, you're gonna hate working with Newfelt, but you're gonna you're gonna love the way it sounds. And that was accurate.
0: Yeah, it's I, I I had a mentor in the business world once where, you know, he would basically say like, "You can hate me now, but you'll love me when you're successful." And it's basically that with the music. Yeah. Yeah. So was there a sense of freedom uh, writing for the Prittle concern? Uh, I'm sure you had all you've mentioned a little bit but you had all this music that just doesn't fit Trouble charger is now something very specific so was there a freedom to not have to well, fit ab- everything absolutely. in that box
1: yeah absolutely and i wanted to like i wanted it to be like a neil young album that's why it's kind of like there's lots of acoustic guitar but there's lots of rock songs i want to be what would neil young do well he would just throw everything into a pot, and and uh so it was, it was very satisfying and 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 uh geez what's his name <laughs> the, the the is it you'll Andy? wake up in the
0: middle of the night
1: exactly you know? but we were talking one day and i said you know you know one of the, one of my regrets is that you know he was engineering that i that i that i didn't learn you know i squandered all my time in tr- trouble i didn't learn how to be an engineer and a, a producer and he said he said what you're not a producer, he said. What do you think you're doing right now? And I was like, oh. <laughs> and that was always, That was kind of always the first two, the first two albums I kind of produced. I, I it was me that said, okay, now now we need this part. Now we need this part. And then, like I say, I think, you know, I've come to producing very late in the game. But I don't know if I could have done it even 10 years ago. It, it just seems like I have so much accumulated being obsessed with music that now it's 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 very fulfilling to me producing um because sometimes it feels like 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 i'm in the understanding the matrix when i look at a song and it, it i like i understand what it should be and and you know like the when neo sees everything in the code and it all comes together for him you, you, you listen to music for so long and then you realize, oh, there's there's this is what makes a good song. And this is what makes a bad song. And this is how these are the rules that you have to follow for this and for this and for this.
0: What would you say are the, the roles of a producer for our, our listeners that don't know the, you know, the production side of music?
1: Uh, well, like I said before, a lot of people, some people might write great lyrics and they might write great Melodies, but when they put the song together, it needs some work. It's like I said, like, you know, what you think is the course, that's not the course, that's the bridge. And uh, and just just you know, it's it's being a producer is kind of like being a, a film director. You're you're you have to keep an eye on the big picture and the details at the same time. And for me, that's really satisfying because I'm able to 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 process all that and, and realize all that, you know, and just make, make the songs better. You know, not everyone knows how to, how to make their thing. And an outside ear is, is, is always, is always welcome. We were a song on maybe it's me. We, uh, there was a middle section and we slaved over how long it should be. So should it be, should it be four bars? Should it be eight bars? Should it be 12 bars? Should be 16 bars? We tried it every way, every way. And we came up with the length we wanted and we were happy. And then Tom Lord LG was mixing it, the famous mixer, and he just cut it. And uh, and Lou said, but we spent so much time on that. He said, I don't freaking care. <laughs> it sounds better that this way and that's you know it's 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 great to have an outside ear that's not in sometimes you get so caught up with the process oh we worked hard on this but if something else is better an outside ear they don't know they don't have that bias of like we worked so hard so this has to stay you have this this uncolored ear that you can you can take things at face value and say this this part is not good
0: i don't care how long you you worked on it. So I've listened to various artists that you've produced and, and the, the music is great. It's all very different. So is it, is that an important quality to have as a producer, as someone that's able to uh, enjoy and understand the wide spectrum of genres?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna produce
0: hardcore or, or you're not doing the next metal uh, you're not doing the next uh, slipknot album, no.
1: No, they that kind of thing or or like real radio pop, but other than that, a a good song is a good song. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a song person. That's 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 my thing. I want to make songs sound good. So the, the the Jackson Reed was really satisfying to me because it was a terrible demo, but I was like, "Oh, there's there's really good things hidden in this bad demo." And I that was really satisfying because i had a whole vision for that it's this is what it's going to be like jackson sings and plays acoustic guitar and and the drummer plays and i think everything else is me and i had a you know this guitar is going to do this this guitar is going to do that um the lightmares that that's the only single that's out right now but that's an amazing record i, I mean
0: it, it to me it I, sounded I, like there was multiple choruses. Like the the payout. That's like, oh, here's the chorus. That's the payout I've been waiting for. Yeah, you, I got that multiple times. It feels like there's like several choruses. Well, I'm
1: I'm I'm a I'm a bridge crafter. I love bridges. It was always my job to write bridges. Uh, like I wrote the bridge on uh, uh, American Psycho and and uh, Brand New Low. And so I really wanted, and and Jamie writes good bridges too. So I was always like, I want to make this bridge like amazing. Um, but th- I mean, that's a good song off that record, but there are four songs on that record that are just amazing. Um, I think there's no, there's no bad songs on this record. I mean, I don't know how successful they're going to be in, in, in. Seeing it be successful, but to me, this is a shoe in for it should be on the Polaris long list, at least. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think they're just an amazing talent. Uh, Jamie's a poet. Uh, We had a great time recording that. And uh, yeah, I think it's a band to look out for.
0: Your your current focus outside of producing is on a project called Pointless. So I don't. Do you consider this a band? Like there's different members, or it's it's a, another outlet for your? Well, members? it's a,
1: it's a band, but it's kind of my solo outlet. So it's it's um, like I said that this this kind of solved my uh, 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 writer's block. And the way it happened was the the first project that my partner Dustin, so he owns, he owns a studio here in downtown Sault Ste. Marie. And he bought this for nothing. And this is the, uh, I can never remember his name, but the guy that the studio architect that designed Revolution, the preeminent Canadian studio architect, he, he designed this place. So this is essentially an unfinished best studio between Toronto and Vancouver. Like the, the physical control room, I have no doubt is the best control room between Vancouver and Toronto. Um, so we have this great space, you know. We need lots of money to finish it, but we're we're just doing things on the, like we, we're running an extension cord from the bathroom, and <laughs> it's freezing in the winter. Um, but uh, so Dustin is the bass player, um, and the first project we did was with this pop punk band called A Dire Setback, and and um, they had booked a gig, and the gig was about three weeks away and i messaged this bass player that i knew and i said hey do you want to be in my new band and he said yeah and i said does your drummer want to be in my new band he said yeah and i literally like got up off the computer went over grabbed my guitar and started writing songs because i needed songs for this band and i wrote four or five songs in the next three weeks Um, I think yeah the 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 first two I sent you I I wrote those two um, and then subsequently wrote the the third one that that I think is the best song I've written in a while the 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 demo I sent you for uh, if it's all the same um, and so again I'm you know the closer it gets to being finished the more gun shy I am but uh, I think we've decided we're gonna tr- we're just gonna finish some songs and release them and not worry about finishing the whole album. Because again, as we've discussed, you know what, no one cares about whole albums now. So, uh,
0: so it's um, about 10 or 11 songs that you have written anyways. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, you sent me, uh, the rough mixes for three different songs. So against the day, all right already and if it's all the same so my notes uh, are great melodies great bass work there's like very active bass through the songs yeah. which is very yeah. cool uh love the distorted guitar riffs the songs aren't in a rush uh, they take their time to build that atmosphere painting a picture haunting lyrics and uh against the day was my favorite of the three nice. yeah
1: yeah it was definitely cuz i've always been you know right from the from nc17 i've always been like don't let the listener get bored like this, this happens, this happens, this happens, boom, 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 boom. And with this, I wanted to so much of the stuff I listen to now, like bands like Deer Hunter or or Kurt vile. they're just in no hurry, like you say, which is I find is the best way to describe it. It's just like, you know, I've never had that kind of thing in the music I make, I've never been like, let's let's just like relax and and you know, and it and in a way this album is kind of like my indie rock grab bag, uh, kind of like the Tom Petty's second last record it's called Mojo with the heartbreakers. And it's a, I don't know if you know this album, it's very blues and it's kind of like every single kind of blues you can imagine. So I'm trying to do the same with indie rock. So the, uh, all right already is, is, you know, my stereo lab it's just one chord done on done on on for eight
0: minutes. Yeah my impression with those three songs is uh if you end up doing a full length album it'll be one that you want to listen with a good pair of headphones yep. and you want to listen all the way through that it's going to be um not about the individual songs it'll be more about kind of the journey that that album takes yep, you on. Absolutely. So I I have uh one one Final question to wrap up a few things. And then I like to do a rapid fire section to give the fans what they want. So, uh, you, man, you, you've had a lengthy career in the music industry. It's probably over three decades now. Uh, how, uh, how do you keep this fun after all this time? You know, most people hate their careers after this long. Uh, how do you keep this fun and, um, what do you account for your longevity?
1: Well, I don't know, but, I but. I, I account for my longevity from just still being alive, I guess. Um, I, I think you're confusing long with lengthy. (laughs) There's been a lot of inactivity. Hey, you're still,
0: you're still making great music. You're still, Um, you know, but as
1: apart from, uh,
0: uh, you know, you know, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm not a young man and, uh, but one good thing about getting old is, is I get better at, at music. I, I think right now I'm playing guitar better than I ever have. I wish in my thirties, I had the drive to be a better guitar player the way I do now. Um, but the other thing is I'm my, my obsessive love for music has not dimmed at all. Uh, I, you know, I, I love music. I'm, I'm I'm a music snob. I carefully curate what music I listen to. I can't stand. I love country unless as long as it's before 1979. Uh, I hate almost all.
0: That's a very specific 40, cutoff. Yeah.
1: Top 40 stuff. Uh, as I get older, I'm more of a, like a songwriter guy. I, I love John Prine and Chris Christopherson and Bob Dylan. And I just, like I said, my I am still obsessed with music. I've been, I've been, obs- been listening to this old Fleetwood Mac song called hypnotized obsessively for about three weeks now. I think I've heard it a hundred times and I, I can't hear it enough. Um, I'm just always want to discover new music and, and listen to new music and, and, and play music. And yeah, it's just all, I, I could I'll never be tired of music. you know, I, I'm, I'm a I I call myself a degenerate musician because I'm like my 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 key to longevity is I have a low nut. So <laughs> I'm I'm able to I'm able to like scrape by with like making peanuts on producing and a little bit of songwriting income and and some little local gigs here and there. So
0: so rapid fire questions. So, uh, some short questions, short answers, uh, what would you be doing if you didn't become a musician? Uh, uh, when I, my dad wanted me to
1: be an accountant. I wanted to, to study math at Waterloo. He said, math, what, what's that? And I think like, if I'd done that, maybe I'd have my dream job right now, which would be like a, uh, 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 analytics, working analytics for the Toronto Raptors.
0: That's a good answer. What would you change about the music industry? And I know that shouldn't be a short rapid fire (laughs) answer. You can, we could do a whole other two hour interview with just that, but. Everything. uh, I
1: would, I would, the, the, this, this show called the voice I've never watched that, but the idea of like taking, taking your looks out of it would be a great thing.
0: What the, what were some of your favorite venues to play at?
1: Uh the uh, uh Marquee in uh in Halifax, um the, the immortalized in the Sloan song, the Marquee in the Moon, uh the Starfish in Vancouver, uh the and the Rivoli in Lee's Palace in Toronto, uh, Mercury Lounge in, in New York, um, and any outdoor festival outdoor festivals it always sounds so great um i played a couple of fairly big outdoor festivals with my cover band in the last couple of weeks and it's just it's a it's a blast when you when you your sound isn't constrained by walls
0: yeah what what's the biggest show that you've ever played i'm assuming it would be a treble charger and what was it like to play to a crowd that size i'm trying to think
1: that first tragically hip show even though the, the crowd wasn't there, it was pretty big. Um, I can't even think of like the biggest, because that never...
0: Probably some summer festivals or something.
1: Well, and, and even the summer festivals, either we were so early on the bill that the, the, there wasn't very many people in the venue or we were on the side stage. So I don't really remember any giant shows like that. Although I do actually, sorry, uh, the, the opening the ACC, The Tragically Hip played two nights, New Year's and New Year's Day, and we were on the first night. Uh, It was before we had in-ears, and I was singing Red to a full house at the ACC, and I could hear my voice filling the arena, and that was very thrilling.
0: Wow. uh, Which which band were you the biggest fan of before opening for them? So maybe it's the Tragically Hip we keep coming back to, but... Uh, I guess you kind of of, knew them before you opened. So we
1: opened for the posies in summer of 1995 and their album frosting on the beater is amazing. And we got to hear them play almost the whole album every night and it never got old. You were, no matter what kind of shape you were in after your, after your gig, you were going to go watch that entire show. Um, we also opened for this band called swell that I was really into, uh, Tour through the southern u.s yeah i would say those
0: what's the best live concert you've ever seen um i saw tom waits at
1: in massey hall during his amazing run in the 80s the frank's wild years tour probably the best sounding show i've ever seen uh I saw Bob Dylan about five years ago. That was amazing. And I saw Tom Petty on his last tour. And that was Waterworks. It's funny because I was talking to Mitch Bowden from Don Vale afterwards. Like, it's like, I couldn't stop crying. He said, how could you not? And I was like,
0: yes, Mitch, you understand. Someone, someone gets it. Uh, Did you ever get to a point where you seriously considered quitting the music business?
1: No, that would be like. Quitting breathing.
0: If if you could sit down with anyone, living or dead, for a conversation, who would it be? Uh, it's a tough one.
1: Yeah, Bob Dylan, Go, uh, Gord Downey. One more conversation with Gord Downey would be nice.
0: Yeah, those are two good choices. What uh, what are the things outside of music that bring you joy?
1: Uh, cooking uh swimming uh went last year and this year but hope, hopefully we're gonna do this every year forever uh three high school buddies and me went up to drove up to lake superior and go to this beautiful beach and swim and uh at the time i was thinking like you know the saint marie if you look at the 10 worst places to live in canada Sault saint marie's top 10 but but we are between the, the twin goddesses of, of Lake Superior and Lake Huron. And so I, I, love, I love swimming in, in the big lakes.
0: If you somehow ended up on death row, I mean, you didn't do it. You're falsely accused, but you have one final death row meal. What do you choose?
1: Uh, maybe the favorite things I like to cook, beef, short ribs, trout rillettes
0: yeah i don't know any dessert in there are you a sweet guy or what probably uh chocolate mousse not bad not bad uh when this is a final final question for the rapid fire uh when you find yourself in a rut what do you do to snap out of it as quickly as possible oh that's a tough one uh cry and eat chocolate mousse. No, that's just me. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Um, I'm a big, uh, I, I love singing. Like I have a cover band called all All the tired horses and we play nuggets. We don't play hits. Um, Throughout my career, I've found that when you sing other people's songs and you, you get out of your comfort zone and you discover so much about, about music and what you what you know
0: and what you don't know. I have three, three final questions. These are a little bit deeper. So you don't, you don't have to rapid fire through Um, them. Um, Man, you've had such a long illustrious career, uh, lots of accomplishments. Uh, Do you have any musical dreams that you still have in your heart that have yet to come to fruition that you're still working towards or that are still on a bucket list?
1: Well, I mean <laughs> since leaving treble charger I it, it, to me being a touring musician it's 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 rough it's difficult but playing all the time like that there's nothing like it so I'm 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 constantly mourning the fact that I'm not a full-time touring musician anymore and uh but I haven't given up that maybe maybe that so anyone watching, if you, if I'm a, I'm an amazing side, man, I, I can, I'm a good band leader. I arrange harmonies and, and I, and I know how to play support. I I love, you know, one of my favorite things is just getting out of the way and supporting songs and playing rhythm and, and
0: yeah. Well, there's from all these interviews, there's quite a few musicians that are looking to still tour. So Rich Beto, the uh, drummer for finger 11, he, he he's free as well. So we're gonna to put together a super group right. on this podcast. Um when you look back on your life and career, what are you most proud of and what are you most grateful for?
1: Oh, I'm 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 most proud of of writing and recording songs. Um there's there's nothing like it. Um and I'm most grateful for for you know people listening and uh you know I I never got into this to be to be famous and being famous is (laughs) I didn't like it I didn't like people recognize strangers recognizing me in Toronto uh I may have liked it for for a minute but um but yeah I'm I'm grateful and, and and it's you know people talk differently about music these days you know in my day everyone was kind of an asshole and and nowadays, everyone's about about uh, you know being grateful and and but that all that language is correct. Uh, one of my favorite writers, Kurt Vonnegut, he had a uh, uh, one of his characters was a drummer, and they played songs that pe- for people. But but every once so every once in a while, we would sneak in what we really loved, which which was jazz. And when we played that, I was in ecstasy. And pretty much any live thing that I do, I'm in ecstasy. So I'm I'm just always grateful for the opportunity to to, to play in front of people.
0: Final question. If you could go back in time and you could sit down next to your 10-year-old self, so you have your lifetime of experience, of mentorship, lessons, highs and lows, what advice do you give cute little Bill sitting there to help guide him through this life?
1: Jeez, I don't know. I would say play more guitar, listen to more music, make, make, put yourself, well, I, I, I kind of got there, but put yourself in a position where music is everything.
0: That's good advice. Where, where can our listeners find you um, on on social media? Maybe they want to reach out and, and say, Hey, I'm looking forward to the new album or, uh, they want to say how much the trouble charger music means to them. Where do they reach out? Is it Instagram? I'm, Is it Facebook? Face, I'm easy to find on Facebook under my own name. Yep, Under your own name. There you go. So as we wrap up, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a, a singer, as a songwriter, as a guitarist. Um, you know, I, I want to acknowledge you for, having the courage to come from a small town and dream big and follow that through to fruition, you know, gold and platinum albums and top singles and Juno nominations. uh, You you show the rest of us musicians what is possible when you actually commit to that. Um, I want to thank you personally for, uh, all the incredible music that you've created uh, so, some of the, the trouble charger music is the soundtrack to my, my teenage years. I, I still, uh, you know, I'm a musician. I play open mics and I just started learning red, uh, because it's one of my favorites. So I'm getting kind of the inside scoop on one of my favorite songs here today. And, uh, you know, last but not least, just as a fan, I want to thank you for sitting down with me for the last two hours. Uh, so I can I can pick your brain as a fan, all the questions I've wanted to know answers to uh, for, for a long time now. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill.
1: Thanks, Joel. I, I really appreciate you uh, you having me on here. You've had some uh, some heavyweights on, so I'm I'm honored to be in their company.
0: You're very welcome. So to uh, to to the podcast listeners, to the Bill fans, to the Trouble Charger fans, all the other projects he's been a part of. Thanks for sticking with us for the last couple hours, and we'll see you on the next episode. All right, cheers. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview. You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joelle is Joel is J O E L, and you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message, and I'll see you on the next episode.